sometimes the best way to lead is to acknowledge when you don't know something and then find a way to fill that gap. So if ever there was a question that I didn't know the answer to, I didn't make it up on the fly. I would say, I'm sorry, I don't have the answer right now, but I will look into it and get back yeah, to you straight yeah. away. You know, it's really important when anybody is to acknowledge and admit when they don't know what they're doing or when they don't have all of the data or when yeah. there are more questions that need to be asked before they can take the next best decision. But this idea that leaders have to be all knowing and, and all seeing and perfect and all it's just total nonsense because nobody is. And so, again, accept when you don't know and then find a way to fill that gap. Okay, everybody, welcome back, or welcome to the Live Unbound podcast, conversations without limits. This podcast is for people who really want to listen to open, honest, raw, and brave conversations. These conversations will transform how you show up in every aspect of life. It's about human potential and performance and exploring the upper edges of what we are truly capable of. I'm your host, Stephen MacDonald, founder of Live Unbound and by trade and training, a high performance and transformational coach to the best performing leaders and teams all over the world. Today, I am absolutely super excited to share a conversation I had with Rupal Patel. Rupal is a super interesting person. She is a CIA agent turned entrepreneur. She has developed unique skills in her experience as a CIA agent in high stakes environments, often briefing the president or in briefing military rooms and teams in war zones. You know, she's absolutely got some really valid and valuable experiences that everybody can learn from. So I am absolutely stoked to have her on and really excited if you want to listen. And, you know, the conversation flows and ebbs and it goes where it's going to go. And that's the nature of the conversation. So hope you get something from it. Happy days. See you on the other side. Rupal, so glad to have you. And I'm so excited and look to, to kick us off, right? So you, you have had a very interesting life. Thank I'm ex you. <laughs> excited to, ex to explore that in, in all its facets. Yeah. But just, you know, a question I have, you could, could you share more context about your earlier days that has kind of led you on the path of your life and, and to where you are right now? You know, that'd be very interesting. Yeah. So let's see, going way, way back. Um, Go way back. <laughs> I'm going way back Go to way the back. beginning. Uh, so I'm originally from New York, born and bred New Yorker, and I come from a Indian American family. So my parents were uh, the first in their families to immigrate to the U.S. And um, I grew up in a very close-knit extended family. So it was me and my three siblings as part of the nuclear family. But then at any given stage in my life, up until I was in my mid-teens, we had aunts, uncles, cousins, both sets of grandparents, various, you know, family and friends living with us for extended periods of time. And so uh, from a very, very early uh, part of my life, family and helping other people was a huge, huge part of it. And it was something that my parents just did. It wasn't this thing that was, you know, forced upon them or that anyone told them they had to do. That's just who they were naturally. And, and I'm lucky in that I like the majority of my family. So it wasn't too uh, onerous having, having them around. And if anything, yeah. it was very enriching. 
Um, and to this day, you know, I have uh, I have 19 first cousins and we're all still pretty close. I mean, we mm. see each other regularly. We're all in a group WhatsApp chat. And um, it's really nice having that that community, that family to rely on. And the way that sort of showed up in my later life, I think, is, well, first and foremost, family is really important to me, but mm. I have a very ex- expanded notion of family and community. And so, you know, I, as I said, I'm lucky that I like most of my family, but I also (laughs) believe, you know, sort of friends and the communities we build for ourselves are the families we make for ourselves. And so for me, community has always been a huge part of it, surrounding myself with good people, the right people. um, And, and then again, extending that to sort of, I guess, the more uh, global community is helping others whenever and however I'm in a position to do so. So helping others is a huge part of, like, I mean, when I, yeah. as, you've, as I listen to you now, I think you you really helping other people has been something that's been a huge passion and that you've yeah. learned and, and been instilled in a value in you from your yeah. from your family and your cousins yeah. and your community. And definitely you're you're in a position now where you're, you're doing that, you know, and you've yeah. Definitely, I, I from from talking to you before, I, I I get that. So so you're so look, I suppose you've you've positioned yourself now where you're really making a huge impact and and helping you know at scale. Mm-hmm. You know, from the value of helping people and the importance of it to being able to do yeah. that as as a profession and in a huge way. Um, yeah. how did you bridge that gap? Do you know, and I suppose the journey you've been on from college yeah. to to the CIA. Yeah. Right, yeah, to, yeah. To, to where you are right now in your business in in London, from from New York to London. Yeah. So there's a huge journey there. So yeah. you know, like, what were the kind of springboard moments for you that that helped you to catalyze where you are right now? Yeah, I mean, I think well, first of all, everything sort of makes sense in retrospect, right? So I can say now I can look back on my life and see this current, this thread of helping other people, of developing an expertise and mm-hmm. using that expertise to help others. But it wasn't anything that I ever consciously set out to do necessarily. It's just a couple of things that I did do consciously was always sort of tune into what I was interested in and the problems that I was interested in in getting involved in or in grappling with in any capacity. And then always having focus, but leaving room for spontaneity. So I have never been, especially in my early life, was never the type of person who was like, I'm going to be this when I grow up and I'm going to go to this university and study this thing. And then, you know, sort of have that very clear uh, sort of A to B trajectory set out. I, like I said, like to do things that I find interesting, engaging, intellectually challenging, but was always very open as to how that would show up. Mm. And so how that showed up in my education was, I studied political science and then went on to study international affairs. And that, again, drew on that problem solving, that developing an expertise, that like chewing on really tough, naughty problems and making sense of the world and understanding things. And I think some of that was also, you know, sort of testament to the foundation, again, that I got at home, whereas there's this real uh, culture in our family, especially my nuclear family, of asking questions, of of understanding the fundamentals, of almost having an engineering approach to life and, you know, getting really understanding the fundamentals, the foundations, and then building it from there. And of course, then there's a problem solving element and all that kind of thing. And so... As I said, it showed up academically and in, in studying political science and, and international affairs. I also love to learn languages. I love to travel. And yeah. so all of that was sort of something that I just looked for ways to do. So I, you know, I spent a summer uh, working at an organic farm in Costa Rica. I interned <laughs> at our State Department, at our embassy in Oman when I was at university. And so it was just following yeah 
what was important to me in the big picture, but also in the immediate uh, in the immediate present. And that led surprisingly to me to the CIA, because I had always imagined that I mm. would craft a career in the Foreign Service and as a diplomat. And that was something I had tangible experience doing, like I said, from from yeah. that experience in Oman. And then when I was in graduate school studying international affairs um, and uh, the CIA recruited me effectively it was sort of a question it was it was it wasn't something that I was going to say no to it was something I had never considered I didn't even realize yeah. there was room for people like me um <laughs> at the at the agency and I just thought wow what a what a cool opportunity to to jump headfirst into and again that element of developing an expertise using it to help others with problems and challenges was of course what I was yeah. effectively paid to do you know and 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 helping policymakers the president his cabinet other foreign officials and US uh, foreign policy partners make sense of our war effort on you know counterinsurgency strategy on democratization efforts and all of these big really complex issues um, was as I said sort of uh, how how that showed up in in my early career so the CIA, in terms of you getting in, I was always curious about how how do you go from yeah. college to yeah. the CIA or, or <laughs> a normal person or even a call it to, to get yeah. to, to working for such um I suppose a lucrative and secretive organization. So yep. so again, you kind of alluded to that it, yeah. it was more kind of found you or you kind of you kind of was presented to you rather than you actually. It was it was sort of presented. So basically, there are lots of uh, ways to the CIA and sort of the the romanticized uh, way Hollywood often depicts it as like you guys sort of get tapped on the shoulder in some dark alleyway by a man wearing a trench coat and carrying a briefcase. <laughs> that was not how it happened to me. But uh, it might surprise some of your listeners to know that you can go online and go to CIA.gov and apply for a job or apply for an internship. And obviously parts of that process will not be disclosed uh, on the open um, sort of unclassified networks. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it is there is a relatively sort of mundane process uh, that you can follow. Uh, for me, it was different. They were at the university that I was studying at recruiting. Um, and that's when our, our paths crossed. And I uh, was asked to, to come in for an interview and I did the interview and then they made me a verbal offer. And then after I got that verbal offer of employment, then it was a, a question of going through the vetting process, which took almost a year for, for me to go through. And that was prior. So you went through the vetting process for a year. And then you, after that was, okay, you're, and then you're, you're, in. you're in, you're in, and then you're in. It's a year is a long process, right? But obviously, you know, you, you <laughs> showcased your capability and, you know, yeah. they were lucky to have you in the end. And yep. I know, I know your, your, um, in the CIA, it's certain things you can't share. I've, I totally understand. Yeah. Could, you know, can you tell us more about your experience? It was five years yeah. and six, six years altogether. Six, yeah, yeah brilliant. Yeah. So it's so six, six, six strong years. Yeah. So, so what was? I mean, I, I've I've read somewhere that you, you know, military briefing rooms in the jungle, yeah. right? So you know, been really, really, really tough and and um, challenging situation. So, yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, broadly speaking, it was, as I said, sort of developing an expertise and then sharing that expertise with others. So some of that involved sharing it with special forces units, uh, both, like I said, of the U.S. and, and foreign uh, foreign governments. Uh, some of that involved living and working in active war zones and and 
briefing the commanding general on the intelligence that was coming in and, and sort of where some of the gaps were. And then also a large part of it was on, as I said, sort of analyzing all of the intelligence that we were getting and then briefing either, you know, sort of the president or ambassadors or senators or, as I said, foreign um, foreign officials on on the issues that they cared most mm. about. And it was, um, you know, it was a real uh, mix. Uh, so it, the thing that being, having that sort of a job um, or career really helped me train was this, having this ability to speak the person's language of whoever I was speaking to. So for example, the the way the president of the United States needs to uh, receive information and the level of information and detail that he requires is going to be vastly different to the special forces units that I was working with are, you know, their seven to 12 man teams and, you know, in the middle of yeah, nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's that's using that same body of knowledge, but really understanding what the other person needs, what's relevant to them and, ha- and then being able to adapt it to their requirements was a yeah. really, really valuable skill. And I think required a lot of empathy effectively, which is, you know, I think a universally uh, useful skill because it really, like I said, forced me to understand, well, what do they care about? Why do they need to know this? And why yeah. why is it important that they know this now as opposed to, you know, sort of in, in two yeah, weeks yeah. days? Yeah. Um, and so, and I said, that's something that's directly transferable into the work I do now is then taking these big complex problems, as you know, from your work yeah. that companies are facing in, in turbulent times, but also in normal times. And parsing through all of that noise, really getting to the crux of the issue of finding that signal, as it were, making sense of it, distilling it to its essence, and then being able to deliver it to yeah. the various stakeholders in a way that's that's digestible and relevant for them is, as I said, sort of a very directly transferable skill uh, that I picked up at the CIA. But but that's that is effectively the sort of the bread and butter of what I did. It was to study an issue, get really smart about it, and then share that information and that analysis and that intelligence with others. You know, and, and Rupa, <laughs> just to kind of stay there for a moment, because yeah. I don't want to take away from the importance of a role like that, you know, and you did mention, yeah. you know, briefing the president, yeah. briefing, you know, military teams that are in war zones and the information you share, yeah. you know, they don't have time to, you know, understand or, or make sense, or I suppose, no one right mind, I suppose, assume or critique it or, or judge it for being right or wrong. They take it for being 100% factual and right and they um, use it. No, that's not actually, that's not uh, uh, surprisingly, or maybe not surprising. That's not how it happens at all. There was a lot of dialogue. So, you know, it's never like we're giving them this, um, this definitive account of this is exactly 100% how it is, because again, the reality of life is there's nuance, there's complexity. It was, this is our best analysis. This is our best judgment. And here's the evidence we've got to support it. But it was never like, oh, well, this, you know, this is the only right answer. There are some answers that are right. more right than others. Yeah. Um, so, so it's a collaborative yeah. process as well, right? So you're yeah. going in there with your information and they've got their experience and their information yeah. and together you arrive at kind of the most optimal way forward or, or kind of, you know, well, and again, process. that's probably a big uh, misconception about the CIA. We never say this is what you should do, or this is what you shouldn't mm-hmm. do. We we are not allowed to be, and nor are we ever policy prescriptive. We just give the decision makers the information, and then what they do with it is totally up to them. Um, so it's never like, okay, Mr. President, you got to go in and do this and execute it this way. It's here's the data, here's the analysis, here's why we think all of these things. Now that you are well informed, it's up to you to decide, you know, whether you want to go this way or that way. And in those moments do they you know is is that is that kind of 
a space where is there a boundary there? I mean, do, is it a conversation? Is it a collaboration? Yeah. Do, they, do they ask you re, your your recommendation, what you would do, and kind of you know, is is that where? And I, I'd imagine in those moments, what you so see is it's, yeah. it's not again, it's not collaboration in that we're coming up with a solution together. It's but it's very conversational. There's always questions. There's always poking at well, why do you think this as opposed to this? Or mm. well, I've heard from this other organization, or you know, my chief of staff, or whoever it is, yeah. that actually things are a little bit different. So it's really unpicking, and that's why we had to be so well versed in what the information was and why we assessed what we assessed, because there was always going to be that back and forth questioning about well, Under the hood. why? Yeah, yeah exactly. What, why? So- why? Yeah, and you can keep <laughs> going. That why question can keep going. Exactly. exactly. And I suppose your natural tendency, I suppose, Rupal, as you said earlier, of curiosity and. Mm. I think that um, I suppose in those conversations definitely was something that was really valuable I'd imagine yeah and also having the humility to and the uh, self-awareness to say I don't know when I Mm. didn't know I think because the last and and this is true again across the board whether you're in in the CIA or in in a business a corporate environment if you don't know the answer to something, don't make it up. You know, there's so much pressure for people to be seen as experts and to have all the answers. And especially if you've got any form of leadership role, but sometimes the best way to lead is to acknowledge when you don't know something and then find a way to fill that gap. So if ever there was a question that I didn't know the answer to, I didn't make it up on the fly. I would say, I'm sorry, I don't have the answer right now, but I will look into it and get back yeah, to you straight yeah. away. That's it. That's that's the only honest, that is the only honest answer you can give because that is the honest answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and similarly in business, I think, you know, it's really important when anybody is in a, um, especially a decision-making capacity uh, to acknowledge and admit when they don't know what they're doing or when they don't have all of the data or when yeah. there are more questions that need to be asked before they can take the next best decision. But this idea that leaders have to be all knowing and, and all seeing and perfect and all, it's just total nonsense because nobody is. And so again, accept when you don't know and then find a way to fill that gap. Yeah, I totally resonate with all of what you shared there, Rupal. And I think, you know, especially for leaders and, and you know, leadership teams within organizations that have that have, you know, a lot of pressure and a lot of um a lot of deliverables and objectives that that are, are really um at the forefront of pressure and that, you know, it's it's the, the team and the collaborative collaborative approach of the team that will enable the success of of those um those endeavors. And I I read a book by a guy called Pete Blaber, The Mission, the Men and Me. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a great book. But he was again he's he was in a war zone. He's he was a Delta Force commander and one of the key takeaways from the book from my perspective, I read it years ago was when he was at an outpost and things weren't going so very well. And, you know, he was in his, you know, you know, you'd notice more than anyone, but he was in his, um, I suppose, him and his team mm-hmm. were, were, in the, were in the outpost and, and they were reporting back to the president of the White House. And then you had the the guys that are out in the field in, in, in ultimately in the war zone. And I suppose the the guys that were out in the field reported back to to, the, to Pete about a certain situation that was, that was at play. And they were looking to him to have the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he He knew that the answer didn't lie with him. Yeah. The guys that were out there knew more than anyone what the most optimal answer was. So simple, a simple um, question that he asked that I never forgot was what, what, what do you recommend? And in that moment, the guys, you know, came up with such a, an optimal solution and, and then they took ownership of it because it wasn't yeah. someone telling them what yeah. to do is, is they come up with the, the answer in a collaborative process with the leader that yeah. then they went ahead and executed with complete ownership and responsibility. And I think it's um, super valuable. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So, so Rupal, you know, when you, again, if you want, if I just stay in, in, in this experience you had, right, because it's such a rich experience. Yeah. Was there, 
like when were you most challenged were you most under pressure and you know you really felt it yeah i mean i think it definitely was when i was in in the war zone context when you really feel the enormity of the responsibility you're carrying because even though like i said we were never going in and saying do this don't do that you know that decision makers are relying on you to make their decisions and their decisions affect literal people literal lives you know people can potentially live or die based on the decisions that the decision makers are making and so it was re- that real awareness of what we say isn't like i said ever going to tell them what to do but they are using it to inform what they do so we better be as damn sure and as damn confident about it as we possibly can be because it could potentially be the difference between life or death and so that 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 element of responsibility mm. and ownership over I'm going to be the first one to pick the holes in my own argument just so that I can make sure that I have strengthened it as much as possible and I have got all of the the questions and all of the potential gaps and you know sort of anticipated some of those to begin with because I don't want to go in with an incomplete assessment of anything um and it's up to me to you know not wait for them to question yeah. me and not wait for them to come up with those um sort of potential holes and gaps and to to sort of foresee them so that I can make my own argument stronger and actually test whether or not it is the strongest argument. So that sense of responsibility, it was both a very um, intellectually, I would say challenging, I mean, because I found it quite invigorating, but it was, it was very weighty. And yeah. like I said, because your physical context is one of constant danger, it, it really does focus the mind. And, and what was really surprising for me was I found a way to compartmentalize. I was able to, in some ways, sort of switch off the fact that quite literally at any moment, you know, we could be attacked. Um, and potentially that would, you know, lead to some sort of physical harm to me or, or potentially some of my colleagues. But then, for it, it, but to then very tactically ignore that information when it came yeah. to delivering the job and focusing on the job and what I was there to do. Very interesting. Because uh, I, I, as you were speaking, I was just wondering how you dealt with, there's, there's a, like you said weight, right? So the weight of, you know, needing to be completely confident in what you're bringing and mm-hmm. the preparation that's you need to put in for that but mm-hmm. then you're you're going into an environment where it's a challenging environment in itself yeah. and you know you, i suppose you said you compartmentalize like you know you said like that you're you're in a war zone right you're in the jungle mm-hmm. in a war zone in a briefing room like what's that like <laughs> what, what, what the hell is that like you know because no like who's going to experience that in life right you have it's so, surreal. You, <laughs> I mean, I, there is no other way to ex- explain it other than it is surreal. And as I said, with I was very tactical about uh, compartmentalizing. So it wasn't like being you know, off in la-la land and pretending like there was no risk. It was just not overwhelming myself with a constant obsession and focus on the risks and the and the physical uh, vulnerability that that we were all facing. It was, you know, being aware of it, doing basically, you know, focusing on what I could control, right? So I can't control what happens, when happens, if we're, you know, given enough advanced warning of any, you know, imminent threat Mm. or whatever. But what I can control is my own situational awareness. What I can control is my own ability to respond. And, you know, sort of, uh, we were given some training in that uh, as well before I deployed. But also then to let go of, to some extent, the rest. And as I shared earlier, to selectively compartmentalize, because 
there's, you know, if you focus only on all of the uncertainty and all of the unknown, you'll never be able to do anything. And that's not why I was there. I wasn't there to obsess over how dangerous things were. Mm. I was there to get a job done. And so, you know, for me, it was, it was a balance of, as I said, being very, very conscious and aware of my surroundings, but not letting it overpower uh, my, my ability to do my job. Because as I said, there's only so much that I can control. So focusing on that really, really helped. The control, the controllable, right? So you knew kind of what was exactly. in your control and that that's your zone of influence and yeah, obviously exactly. aware, awareness around that then was very important. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's, you know, I, I again, there was something came in as you spoke about, you know, you know, I obviously I work with leadership teams and, and yeah. teams a lot. And, you know, at times, you know, you'd find that, you know, just from my experience of, over the years I've been working is you'd have people on a leadership team that, you know, might have, an idea or I want are in a position where they're presenting mm-hmm. and there might be a fear that you know I if I do if I if I do share this and if I do present this I better hell know all the answers because it'll be pulled apart yeah. and and they might hold back as a result yeah. of that you yeah know, and it, definitely well like how would you what, what kind of yeah what would you say to those people in, in those moments yeah, I think my view on most things in life and this is true sort of in business context as well as any other context is more often than not, if there's an elephant in the room, then address the elephant. So in that case, if you know you've got an idea, but there are gaping holes in it, don't try to pretend that those holes don't exist. And again, as I said, in, from a context that I shared earlier, I would very clearly when I was doing my job, go in and say, look, this is what we think. And this is why we think it. But here are some of the uncertainties. Here are some of the gaps. Here are some of the things that are total uh, wild cards that we have no idea about that could make all of this fine-tuned analysis Mm. be totally irrelevant. So similarly in that capacity, you know, I think again, this obsession with being perfect and having all the answers and ironed out every kink. No, I mean, there's a point of of diminishing returns to doing that, right? You cannot anticipate every potential uh, outcome or every potential uh, way that this plan or this idea is going to come up against some friction in the real world. So deliver the best, most coherent plan you can, and then identify, well, but these are some of the potential problems, whether it's a market problem mm. or, a, you know, an economic problem or, a, I don't know, a, a structural problem within mm. the organization or IT, whatever it is, but don't pretend it doesn't exist because then you can actually work once everybody understands and has a common, uh, yeah, a common understanding of where the holes are, then you can work to fix them or fill them together. But pretending like they don't exist just leaves you vulnerable to that person in the room who's going to say, well, actually, well, what about yeah, this problem, yeah, right? Yeah. And and it's, it's a silly thing to do because you already know those problems exist. If you've done your homework, you've done the yeah. research, you've done the thinking. So put it out there. Like I said, if there's an elephant in the room, talk about it. Yeah, put it out there. I think and it's the first thing you said. And I suppose it's, I would imagine it's do that from the outset. Will, yeah. will lead the way then for, and it's, it's an act of vulnerability as well I, yeah. you know, I'd imagine and courage yeah. which will be you know domino effect I'd imagine for, for everybody else and that to step into that that place as well yeah. so if I, if I if we look at your journey so six years so yeah. w- at what point did you realise that you know you're, you're going to move on or it's going to come to an end because that it wasn't, wasn't easy. no it wasn't and it was uh and I still struggled with it even after I did leave I think it was never this sort of flashing moment of clarity where I was like I'm leaving and I'm you know I need to go tomorrow <laughs> it was more this this sort of this this seed that and I couldn't even give you a time frame as to when I started thinking about what was yeah. next but it was I would say you know so I was there from my my early 20s into my early 30s and I would say 
you know, as I was approaching 30, for whatever reason, it felt like a big landmark in in my in my mm-hmm. life. And I thought, well, you know, where, you know, and I started to ask myself those questions, where am I going? What am I doing? What does it all mean? What's important to me? What's the impact I want to have, et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't ever that those answers meant I had to leave the agency. It just meant that I it it ought the sort of in answering those questions, I started to feel a little bit like I wanted a different challenge. I wanted a different test. I had come to the CIA a total blank slate, not knowing what I was getting myself mm-hmm. into, not knowing what the opportunities were. And they were so varied and so deep and so intense and so mixed that I felt like I'd really gotten an amazing, really meaty experience in the time that I was there. And then I thought, well, look, I can either stay and have more of the same. And obviously there'd be elements that were different and challenging in other ways and interesting in different ways, et cetera. But I sort of got the lay of the land and and I felt like if I hadn't left when I did leave, again, around sort of that in my my early thirties, it would have just I, I didn't ever want it to run the risk of getting dull. And I felt I felt better to leave on the high when I was still really excited about being there, when I still felt really committed to the mission, when I still felt really uh, proud of what I had done and, and loved what I was doing, as opposed to running the risk of just becoming deadened, you know, sort of 10, 20, 30 years into the future yeah, and, yeah. and then feeling like, oh, God, I'm desperate to leave this place. I, I, as I said, I never wanted to um, I never wanted a reason to leave. You know, I wanted to leave on a high. And so, as I said, it was sort of a, a process that took a while to unfold. And then I just thought, well, it's now or never. I got to do it or I don't. And, and and you know, because the longer you stay, the harder it feels emotionally, internally to leave. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, it wasn't a precipitous decision. It sort of evolved over time. And it was wanting a different challenge, wanting to test myself in different ways and yeah. new ways to really see if I could hack it in another capacity, because I was, as I said, did brilliantly in my career there. And, you know, I was promoted every time I was up for promotion and, you know, had brilliant reviews and all of these things. But, you know, I I, I didn't want to be just a one trick pony. And so I thought, well, you know, challenge myself in a new way. Now's a great time to do it. I'm still young enough to pivot to, you know, to be able to, um, to, to do something new in my career and it won't be seen as being flaky or um, irresponsible, but still sort of mature enough to know what it is that I can contribute, what I want yeah. to contribute and, and explore it with a bit more intention. Yeah. I find, I find that fascinating, especially when you're, you know, kind of doing really good, you yeah. know, have a lot of opportunity within the CIA and you're enjoying yeah. it, you know, you were enjoying yeah. it. And it was at that point that you, that you, yeah. you, you walked away, you know, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that's very challenging for people. Even you look at sport, you know, well, things, exactly. you know, a lot of people, it's not their decision to, to leave. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, they're not in a position where they're good enough anymore or kind of, you know, mm-hmm. they, they get too old or whatever it is. And um, you stepped away. So I just want to, I suppose I want to respect that big time mm-hmm. and say, Thank say you. you know, congratulations. So you did do that. And then you stepped into the unknown. Mm-hmm. So there was like right away, right out of the gate. Yeah. You're at the edges. That's the challenge. Yeah. How did you navigate the edges of that world? I think I did what for me felt like a relatively safe leap into the unknown, which was to get smart again. So <clears throat> I didn't just quit my job with, or quit, yeah, quit the agency with nothing to do and just sort of throw myself into the wind. I again sort of thought about it and, and, and planned it so that I would 
I knew I was going to leave the agency and move into the private sector in some capacity. And I thought, well, what better way to make that transition than to, again, go back to the foundations and the fundamentals, you know, and really understand what business is all about. You know, what's some of the jargon, what's some of the technical capabilities that I will need to have, even just a passing awareness and facility with. And so for me, what that looked like was to get an MBA. So I moved to London to to go to London Business School and I got my MBA because it felt like the smart thing to do at the time as far as not just giving me the toolkit and the 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 vocabulary and the intellectual um, ability to to look at different and new problems, but also it gave me what I imagine, and I don't know how valuable it is or not to be honest, but what I imagined was going to be some sort of external credibility as well. Whereas you know when you are making a relatively um, for many people confusing change or a very a sharp uh, career pivot. It's it's easier to to explain it when you've got this grounding. Okay, well, you know, I, I I'm not going from working at CIA to you know sort of throwing myself into I don't know, the marketing team at a, of a big conglomerate. It's I'm going to get the knowledge base. I'm going to get the foundations and the fundamentals right, and then leverage those other skills that are transferable from the CIA. Combine them with you know the the the, the theoretical knowledge from the MBA, and then transition into the business world. So that's how I did it. So. Transition into the business world. So, yeah. so again, the college, the obstacle, yeah. the MBA, and throughout that process, you started to do more and more, get more and more engaged with the business world. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So can you tell me about that kind of process yeah. and, and where you are right now as well? I'd love to. I'd love to yeah. So first, uh, so initially when I when I started, uh, what typically happens at most MBA programs, whether here or any other country, there are a few tracks. You either go into consulting, you go into banking. Or you do something other. Right? <laughs> it was pretty much, and especially back then. This is now uh, eleven years ago uh, when I started at LBS. It was very much banking, consulting, and then who the hell else knew what else was there aside from those two things? And so yeah. the natural progression for me would have been to go into consulting because there's a lot of transferable skills, you know, analysis and uh, data and um, you know briefing and and problem solving and all of that great stuff. But I very quickly realized I didn't want to be a consultant. I very quickly realized that actually the ultimate test and the the test that felt truest to me was to start my own business. And so relatively early in the MBA, I decided actually I'm going to not do any of that stuff and I'm going to dive into the, the startup world. And at the time, London was still sort of finding its feet as a, I mean, not finding its feet, but it was still relatively early in its um and it's sort of uh, startup ecosystem development. And there was a lot going on outside of the LBS campus that I made a point to immerse myself in. So, you know, it was networking events, it was hackathons, it was all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. to really see if if that's what I wanted to do. And through that process of throwing myself into that world, of doing what I could on campus, so, you know, sort of business plan competitions and pitch competitions and all that sort of academic stuff, I realized that actually, yeah, this is this is what it is. But the what that would look like for me took again a process of evolution of, of 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 both thinking about it, but also trying different things and you know working for some early stage startups, trying to flesh out some of my own ideas. And that's how that's how it happened. So again, it wasn't this sort of quick sort of on-off switch from 
being an MBA student to starting a business, it was this process of experimentation, of immersing myself in these contexts and these environments. And, and then that's when, um, and then while I was in, in the, uh, in the MBA is when I started my, my first business. And so it was through building that business actually that which is in in real estate development and construction uh, it was through building and growing that business that i actually found myself really gravitating towards doing more of the things i was doing informally which was working with other leaders working with other founders mm. providing informal consulting slash mentoring and mm. even coaching in some capacities and i loved that because again going back to that th that thread from the cia and, and from my early life even of developing expertise, using it to help others, problem solving, you know, design thinking, engineering, all of that stuff. That's what I loved. It was like, I've got this experience building my own business, growing it, doing, you know, the challenges, the opportunities, all of that stuff. I've got real lived experience. How can I use that to help other people who are grappling with similar challenges? Yeah. And oh, by the way, I've got this really powerful toolkit of skills and mindsets and all these other things that I either was trained in from the CIA or had to develop for myself at the agency. And so it was this really, again, in retrospect, beautiful combination of everything that makes me me, everything that I've studied and experienced and, and got immersed in. And it's a really, um, it's a really interesting and a dynamic sort of combination. And that's what I loved. And, and all, like I said, in retrospect, it makes sense. And it all sort of slots in nicely together. But going through the process was really, really messy. And it was only through taking some very conscious, very structured time out to think about, okay, well, what are those transferable skills? And how does that look in business? Because of course, it's not exactly the same. I mean, a CIA mission and, and sort mm -hmm. of conducting that overseas is very, very different than a product launch in a, in a business, you know, but there are some foundational similarities. And then again, layering on top of that, my own uh, business and commercial experience, laying on top of that, some of the theory. And, and as you, you know, I am an avid reader, I'm a lifelong learner, and it's not just business books. I love reading about astrophysics. I love reading about art. And, you know, so all of these multifacets, just drawing on all of the various, the way I refer to it is all of the very streams um, that fed into my unique life lived experience. How can I bring the richness of that and make it relevant for and adapt it to other businesses? And that has been just a brilliantly uh, fertile sort of intellectual place to be. Um, and that's what I'm doing now is working with businesses of all sizes. So, you know, sort of late stage startups all the way up to multinational corporations, you know, sort of with, you know, multiple billions of uh, market cap. And the problems are varied and they're, they're exciting and they're really impactful. Um, and that's what I love is diving into each individual problem, each individual nuance and complexity. And again, pulling apart the mess and getting to the heart of the problem and, and creating the structures to, to either fix those problems or to move past or around or above or whatever um, those challenges and help these organizations just create more sustainable. And I don't mean that from an eco perspective, but a more durable, yeah, consistent, work, yeah. consistent and repeatable success, culture, all of the things that are important to those businesses. In, in I suppose a couple of things have come in, Rupert, and I took, you mentioned book, and I definitely want to circle back to the brilliant book you, you've yeah. um <laughs> You, you've created and and I suppose that's initially where I first came across yeah. you, you and and your powerful work. Yeah. But you mentioned uh, your work right now and with, with businesses and from the different um, different types and different industries and different stages. Like, has there been a common 
um, challenge that, you know, you found yourself, you know, immersed in no matter what the business or where the business is at? Is there, has there been something in there that's been really common across the board that, that you've, you've been working on and, and been supporting organizations with? Um, I would say very roughly speaking, it's one of two things. It's either leadership challenges. So I do a lot of work with leadership teams and mm-hmm. that's around motivating their teams, keeping them focused, you know, and down to even sometimes the nitty gritty of like, what does flexible working look like now? How do we, you know, sustain a team culture and a company culture when people are here, there and everywhere? So it's sort of leadership focused in in one capacity. Um, and also the challenges of being a leader, because everyone thinks, oh, they're, you know, off swanning in their, in their, in their corner offices, having a great time going out to lunch and, you know, having martinis all day. Being a leader, especially the good ones, is really flipping hard. On top of the mechanics and the technical expertise you have to have for your industry or your sector or your company, there's all of the, what I think is often a lot harder, is the politics. There's the shareholders, there's your customers, there's your team, there's the interpersonal dynamics. It's, you know, everybody's sort of individual way of doing things, butting up against each other. And so there's a huge leadership element to what I do. The other big uh, sort of theme is is transformation. And sometimes that's powerful transformation where it's sort of led by the company because they're growing or they've just gotten another round of funding or they have a new market opportunity or a new product opportunity. And sometimes that transformation is uh, externally forced. So it's a big shock, whether it's an economic shock or a global pandemic shock or an energy crisis or, you know, all of the shocks that we're all facing these days in particular. But so it's that that sort of, that evolution and that transformation and it, and all of a sudden things come to a head and it's so many things layered on top of each other and they want to get through to the other side but because there are so many layers to the problem they're just paralyzed by the problem and so yeah like i said the leadership and the transformation i would say are the two biggest sort of um aspects of, of the work i focus on now yeah definitely connected with you and that rupal you know a huge part of my work is <clears throat> leaders and transformation in teams you, you referenced you said especially the good leaders yeah. Curious yeah. about your experience. Like what's a good <laughs> what's a good leader? You know, what that that's the Yeah. I think I mean obviously this is in some ways how long is this piece of string question, right? But for me, there are some some basic uh aspects of being a good leader. One is the ability to make a decision. And it's not that sense of again being all knowing, all powerful, but to not get paralyzed by the analysis paralysis or by the overload of information and to just be able to take it all in, use your capacities, your intellectual capacities, et cetera, and your just, you know, being smart to then take a decision and then take ownership of that decision. Yeah. Because so many yeah. people, if things go well, you know, the stereotype, of course, but this is sadly borne out quite a lot. If things go well, they're the savior. If things go wrong, it's everybody else's fault, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's being able to decide, being decisive, and then taking ownership over the, that, that decision. Secondly, and this is something we touched on quite a lot, um, is having the humility and the self-awareness to know your limits. So I think too many leaders in society does a really bad job also of reinforcing these expectations, feel they have to be perfect or can't fail or can't make a mistake or, you know, and everybody's watching them and, you know, they're under all of this scrutiny. And sometimes that is the reality. And, but the, the equally potent reality is that everybody, no matter how good, how smart, how well-trained, how thoughtful, how thorough, everybody will trip up at some point. And sometimes it is through negligence. I mean, you do get bad leaders who are just bad at their job, but sometimes it's just, you made a decision and it didn't work out. 
again, you controlled the controllable and all of the uncontrollable was what actually won the day. And so it's having the humility to accept again and take ownership of your failures as well as your successes. And then also to acknowledge the fact that other people whether regardless of where they're at in the organization or you know on the on the in the hierarchy internally could be a source of really valuable information and input so you're not the only one who's charged with having all the ideas with having all the solutions it's that openness to learning and to being yeah a learning leader as opposed to a uh trying to come off as being an all-knowing leader yeah and i i think with, with leadership something that i've you know, experience myself in every, you know, when, through my life, really, when you, when you, yeah. when you have leaders that you kind of work with and you see people and even right now in this moment in time, when I'm working with organizations and with my own team, it kind of comes down to three questions I find. And and the first question that, you know, the answer needs to be yes to, if you're a leader that you're, you're you know, the people that report into are essentially everyone around you need to say yes to this one is, are you good at what you do? Yeah. Right. So that needs to be yes. And then the second question, do you care about me? yeah that needs to be yes and then the last one can i trust you and if you can say yes to the competence and compassion then trust will be a player when you've got trust yeah you know you've got a leader that's admired and can make a huge influence and and can help people be better leaders um than even they were themselves yeah and actually sort of building on that sort of the last element of trust is knowing how to walk that balance between the trusting and the verifying, right? So again, at the agency, we have obviously that that phrase of trust, but verify, you know, trust your sources, but verify them, mm. sense check them. Absolutely. And the same true is sadly, or, or just realistically is true of human beings, right? Trust your advisors, trust your team, trust that people will do their job. But then verify, because there will be people who do the bare minimum. There will be people who will abuse that trust. There, And I'm not saying this is the majority. If, if anything, it's probably far fewer than, you know, than a lot of people think. But trust, but verify. And again, like I said, that balance, depending on the organization, depending on the culture, depending on your team, will be different. But it's never this idea of like, oh, well, I've delegated that or I'm trusting, you know, these mm-hmm. people to do this. I'm just going to totally wash my hands of it because that's not a leader either. Again, you the ultimate buck stops with you. So yeah. even if they totally screw up, you can't be like, oh, well, that was on them. You're the one who's getting, you know, sort of the the flack in the press or with your shareholders or with your board, et cetera. So trust but verify is also an, an equally important sort of addition to to that sort of that those three questions, I think. No, I love that. I really do. I think it's a, it's definitely I suppose just to kind of bring back something you said earlier about the kind of um trust piece that you know and i and i'd find that um definitely from my experience it's challenging when you do the trust but verify and the verify comes back not what you want it to be and this was from your like how would you advise in that instance what's <laughs> what's the, what's the next step then when you when you have given that trust and it didn't go the way you wanted to go and you've, you know you have to to deal with that so I think, again, it goes back to the elephant in the room, right? If it's their elephant in the room, you got to talk about it. And, and too often leaders at all stages and all levels will avoid those tough conversations. And it's not to say that, you know, this has gone wrong and you go in and you berate them, whoever publicly and you say, OK, you know, sort of my way or the highway or you're fired or do anything necessarily extreme. It's having first at the very least having that conversation. What went wrong? Maybe there was a miscommunication. Maybe there, maybe you as the leader didn't clearly identify what it is you wanted or how you wanted it to be executed or whatever it is. And they did what they thought they were supposed to do. So sometimes it's just having that conversation to understand 
well, why did this go wrong? Secondly, it might also be a question of, well, did you have the resources to do what you needed to do? Because we've all probably experienced that where someone tells you to do something, but then doesn't give you the authority, the budget, the resources and staffing or whatever it takes to actually execute it properly. And, And sometimes you're set up to fail. And so it's having that initial conversation, understanding, again, the why, the fundamentals, what went wrong and, and, and where, as a leader, can I take ownership over at least some part of it, if any. And then after that's been explored, then you can go into the remedial parts of, okay, well, you know, next time this is the standards or these are the criteria, or next time, you know, I'm going to be, we're going to quantify the results and the outcomes we want better. Or, okay, now instead of, you know, you having a, a, a semi-annual review, we're going to do a review together every quarter so that we can measure progress and things yeah, are happening yeah. the way they're supposed So not getting to, not fixing the person necessarily first, fix the problem, understand the problem, and then see if you can fix the person. And look, sometimes that person just won't ever deliver. And But you have to at least give them the chance and have that discussion and give them at least the benefit of the doubt that they tried. And then if under further investigation, you find that they didn't try or that you know they willfully were just underperforming and they're just coasting because they think they can, that's a different conversation. But at least have that initial conversation of exploring open, trying to understand, and then you can you know go from there where you need to go. And then if you do then have to have a second or third difficult conversation. Mm. Hey, look, you've got a warning. And then maybe it's going to mean that we part ways or, hey, okay, we've given you all of this time to live up to expectations or deliver on what we asked and it's just not working out. Those are, again, additional difficult conversations that too many companies and leaders avoid having and they just make that person somebody else's problem. They'll mm. you know, push them to a different department or send them to you know, on a secondment somewhere for a year or whatever. And Again, I mean, that's just not a good look for a leader. That's yeah. not being decisive. That's not taking ownership. That's just ignoring the problem and kicking it down the road. So, you know, those difficult conversations need to be had. Yeah. And quite often, even in my own work experience, where, you know, that through the process of high performance, you know, that's ultimately yeah. you're you're looking to to work with your the people you lead and get them to perform as best they can so that they can do their best work, you know, and, and enjoy it as best they can as a byproduct. Yeah. Um, at times, some people just don't want to, step into that place and would rather stay in a comfort zone, you know, exactly. and I think it's true, through the process of giving them a platform and giving them a platform to be at their best where you realize that actually they don't, they don't want to step up. And I think before you even need to have the difficult conversations or before, I suppose, ultimately along the journey of those conversations is where it just becomes uncomfortable for a, mm. for the person that they, they do decide themselves to to yeah. do what's right for them and, and, and to move to um, a different organization or into a different position. So it's, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of multiple benefits that come from, you know, stepping up in, in leadership in a way that you give you give your your people the best chance to be at their best. Yeah. And, you know, you, you see a lot com- coming out of that. Um, and the reality is sometimes somebody's best might be 50% of what you need. And, and you will never know that until you have that honest question or that honest conversation. And it's not necessarily failing on them. It's just a mismatch between expectations and reality. Exactly. And so give them the benefit of the doubt to, you know, sort of, to put that out there and for you to uncover it. And then, as I said, yes, you know, it's, it's then once you realize that, okay, well, actually the best they can do isn't good enough. Like I said, give them the opportunity to either stay within the organization in a different capacity. Cause again, not everybody wants to be a leader. Not everybody wants to be, or can be a star performer. Some people literally just want a job, just want to be able to, you know, sort of have that social aspect, you know, do good enough, but it's not 
that that's not where they get their meaning or their purpose or their drive from. And that's okay, right? It's okay that people have yeah. different uh, drivers, different um, expectations for themselves. And sometimes we need to understand if there's a mismatch and then fix that mismatch. Totally. And just, just in terms of that verification piece, mm. uh, you know, I just want to say it because it's not about getting, you know, okay, in three months time, we'll come back and verify, you know, you can do, you can do that, you know, in every conversation you have. And yeah. there's four, four questions that kind of, that I found just through experience again in, in my work that, you know, if you, that you can have with um, your team members and, and the people you lead that will enable that, that I think shared understanding the shared clarity and alignment and any shared commitment, which is what you're striving for. When you get those three, four things, you kind of, you know, when everyone is on the same wavelength, moving in the right direction, it's powerful, but it doesn't just happen. So the questions, so what's working, what's not working, what's possible and how can I help? Yes. And I think especially that last one is how can I help? Because again, too many leaders just assume the worst. They think that people are being lazy or they don't care or everybody has their vision. And sometimes they just don't have the resources or they don't think they have the support to actually execute it. And it is your job to find that out because sometimes they won't ask. They won't feel they can ask. They won't feel they are in a position to ask or they think that they might be seen as creating problems or trouble. Mm. And so it's that last piece I think that often, too often gets lost is what can I do to help? And, and you know, when it comes to leadership and, and I've, I've, you look, I've experienced this with sport as well, right? And that, yeah. um, when you and I, and I want to reflect back on, on your own career in the CIA as well, and when when you left, right, you know, when you transition, um, or when you when you're so immersed in something that you can get, you know, your identity and kind of yes. you can get really, really kind of you know attached to it in many ways. So yeah, I think in leadership, it's it's definitely something in leadership. But if if I just even for yourself, um, yeah. Rupa, did you experience that when when you were? And so, yeah, when you kind of moved on, was there some element of you? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I think, and high performers of all sorts, whether that's, prof- you know, in sports and, you know, academic pursuits and business and any capacity, if you are a high performer, one becomes so, and I say this as someone who self-identifies as a high performer, mm-hmm. you get so used to uh, being the best. You get so used yeah. to being the A-star student. You get so used to, thinking that that is your entire self-worth and having to prove it and having to get other people to validate it and all of that kind of stuff, that when all of those feedback mechanisms go away or they change, it can be really, really destabilizing. And for me, that happened when I left the CIA and I started my own business because all of a sudden I didn't have the sexy sort of backing of the CIA. I didn't have the the credibility and the, the credentials of, you know, being an MBA student anymore. Here I was, you know, having all of that stuff on my CV. And then all of a sudden I was a nobody, right? What could I put on my my, you know, sort of theoretical business card, you know, that I'm starting a business and I don't know what's going to happen, you know? And, <laughs> and so for me, that was one of the biggest uh, challenges of those early years of starting my business was all of a sudden I'm not affiliated with anyone where I can get that sense of pride or in any organization where I can get that sense of pride, that sense of camaraderie, that sense of being a part of something. And it's just me. It's unproven. It's untested. Nobody knows me. There's no, uh, no one giving me a gold star or, you know, giving me a performance award or any, even a performance review for that matter. And so many of us are used to or need that external validation, that external feedback. So for me, that was one of the hardest things was to find a way to separate 
my sense of self-worth and um, <clears throat> humanity effectively from my job title or the organization I was currently affiliated yeah. with. And so many people don't do that. And I'm not saying it's an easy process. I mean, for me, it took a good couple of years for me to feel comfortable just being me and letting that be enough, you know, this idea of enoughness. And now we're getting sort of a bit into um, some of the more intangible skills mm -hmm. and resilience. But I think for so many people, that feeling of being enough who as who they are without the trappings of a degree or a job title or a company or a whatever, or wealth and, you know, sort of a big house or, you know, all of these trappings and markers of success for so many people, they, they don't go through that process. And so they think all of a sudden, well, I've gotten fired now, who am I? I'm worthless. Or, you know, I've been demoted or, you know, my, my stint as a CEO wasn't this blinding success or whatever it is. And, and it can be really, really internally and mentally and emotionally challenging. And I think, you know, there's no one way of start of divorcing one sense of self-worth from, you know, what you do and, and how you do it. But it's, it is, something that I think everybody needs to at least start exploring. It doesn't matter how senior you are, how early you are in your career. At some point, there will be probably for all of us this point where you have that crisis of identity of like, oh God, who am I if I'm not, yeah. you know, an elite athlete or, you know, working at this amazing company or, or <clears throat> I don't know, whatever it is. And you know, sort of the, the natural question is, how did I do? <laughs> yeah, that's me, the question. Yeah. yeah and I, I wish there was a good answer, uh, Stephen, but there really isn't. I mean, it was definitely a process. As I said, it took multiple years. I think some of it was just after awareness, awareness is very, Rupert. Your awareness huge, is strong yeah. there when you referenced it, like it was like being aware of it. Yeah, you know. definitely being aware of that because I, I've always known that about myself. And I think self-awareness is one of the most undervalued and underutilized uh, skills that any human can have. But I have always been relatively self, pretty self-aware and I've gotten better with time and, and age, I think. Um, but I've always known that about myself, that I love you know, I am that person who loves getting a gold star. I am that person who, you know, sort of blooms under praise and adoring gazes of, you know, sort of authority figures. You know, I was that kid in school who like teacher would ask a question. I'd be leaping out of my chair with my hand in the air. So I know that about myself. And it was starting to, to start the work of, well, why do I care so much? You know, is it really important? Why does it feel like such a huge uh, punch in the gut when I don't have that or when I get negative feedback and all of these things and starting that questioning again getting to the fundamentals why do I believe what I believe why do I think yeah. my self-worth is deeply entwined with where I work or where my job title is where is that coming from is that something I believe or is that something that was projected onto me and I've just internalized and for so many this people like just going down that process of asking why you believe what you believe will start to uncover a lot of really powerful answers that you might not have realized. So for me, I realized when going through this process was a lot of it was just socially constructed, right? I grew up in a high achieving family in a high achieving society mm -hmm. where, you know, your, your success is measured and measurable by salary, job title, status, all of these other things. But actually when I asked myself if I cared about any of those things, the answer was a resounding no. For me, what success looks like, yes, it's nice to have money and it's nice to have, you know, material things that you care about. I'm not a total, you know, sort of um, ascetic by any means. But for me, what I care about is the quality of my lifestyle. And it's doing things I care about 
living on my own terms and not having to be tied to any one organization or any one way of doing things and really just living by my own standards. And it was when I finally gave myself the the room to explore what those standards are, to explore what was meaningful to me, that I realized, gosh, all of this other stuff that I thought was so important, or I, I, I interpreted and I internalized as being important, you know, the accolades, the titles, all of that stuff, I could give a toss about, you know, like, yeah. to me, what I really care about is making an impact and to doing work that's meaningful. And as I said, living on my terms. And so I can do that without the CIA behind me, without, you know, this amazing sort of um, credential of, you know, an MBA program or a big organization or whatever. All of that is internal. I am the source of that. Nobody else. Right. And so, again, this is getting slightly into the maybe the more philosophical side of being a leader. But I think that self-knowledge, that self-awareness and that self-acceptance is something that is so undertrained and undervalued. And it's something that I think for me was a huge part of that process of being able to divorce my sense of self-worth and worthiness yeah. from what I was doing in any given moment. Yeah. And I think, I, I, you know, I've, I'm just reading your book, right. And and definitely we pivot there right now, like within the book itself, what I've kind of, one of the things I took out of it was that, that small incremental positive action you know, yeah. you know, rising out of that awareness is when you can take the right, I suppose, take yeah. the right positive action, deliberate yeah. action in the right direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's something that really resonated. Did you want, is that something that kind of you've then with that awareness yeah. took into place? And Yeah. And I think for me, so again, you know, I do talk a bit about, about this in the book. It was starting that process and not feeling like it had to be this neat, sort of A to B thing where it's like, I'm going to do these exercises. I'm going to ask myself these questions and this is the result I'm going after. It was more of a, of a curiosity about, okay, well, let's look, let's look at the data, right? I, I love data. Um, what is it? What, to, what have I proven to myself that I care about through my deeds? Not just what I say, not what I put on my, you know, sort of goals list every year, but what does my life say about the things that I care about? And by what I've chosen for my career, by the way, the relationships that I have, all of these things, I've realized that the things, that the themes and the patterns and the threads, et cetera, are all around, again, community and people and family and also positive contribution, right? So allowing myself, again, the time and the space to to delve into myself and to really understand what it is that I care about, again, not through some theoretical exercise of like, oh, these are the things I value, but no, looking at my life, what does my life say about what I value and how have I proven that? And then also the flip side of that is, what is some of the baggage that I carry about who I am and what I'm good at and what I'm bad at and all of these things and where, any, if any of that stuff is sort of destructive or limiting in any way, again, where have I disproven that in the past through my life and through my deeds and through my actions yeah. and through my results? And that process, as I said, was messy. It was fluid. It was a lot of sort of back and forth and it evolved over time. But then drawing on that, it was like you said, creating these small experiments of you know something very small, for example, is I love to write. That is another thing that has followed me throughout my entire life. I've always read. I've always written. I I really strongly feel the power of words. And that was something that I started to just do in a small way and to embed into my day in a small way, 
because of this sort of process of self-reflection and self-analysis, I had realized that actually I had sort of dropped it in a lot of ways. And so reintroducing writing in a small way, first writing a blog that nobody read and then, uh, <laughs> and then, and then publishing it so others could read it and then doing it regularly and then it turning into a weekly newsletter and then other people could subscribe to it and, you know, growing that. And, and then eventually that evolved into a book. I never sat out, you know, however many years ago writing that blog thinking, oh, this is the beginning of my book. But it evolved. You know, I, 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 I tuned into myself. I experimented in a small way. I integrated into my life in a small way. I didn't quit, you know, everything I was doing and say, oh, I'm going to become a journalist or I'm going to become a full-time author yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. And so everybody can do that. But you, again, have to give yourself the time and the space and the, and the headspace to just explore what it is that's important to you. What are your values? Question where some of those values might have come from other people if they feel like they're in misalignment with yeah. your own and then make these small incremental changes and just see where it goes. It might go somewhere, it might go nowhere, but at the very least, the reward is in the doing itself because yeah. you are now living more in alignment with who you are as opposed to trying to pretend you care about things you don't care about. Yeah. And, and to your, like it's all about, you know, enjoying that journey, not waiting for, you know the ultimate goal to be realized and then you can be happy it's about just enjoying the journey i think when you do take that deliberate action step i suppose the momentum of that the positive effect of that is is, is what will happen ultimately naturally you'll, you'll begin to enjoy it yeah. so your book so your book rufus so tell us yeah tell me all about that i mean if i was to ask yeah. one question out of the gate like, yeah what's the what what do you want people to learn or to change, or what are the top things that you want them to take away from reading that book? I would say the fundamental premise is that literally any individual can do anything, but they have to do the work. They have to, you know, again, some of the techniques I talk about in the book about creating the space, about creating the, surrounding themselves with the right people, curating their inputs, all of that stuff, but literally whatever big or small ambition anyone has, whether that's in a career capacity and a personal capacity or everything in between is doable. But so many of us just leave it to being like wishful thinking like, oh, well, yeah. one day I wish I could do this or I wish, I, oh, that'll never happen. And again, it's unpacking all of that stuff and then having a bit of a toolkit to say, okay, yeah. well, here's what I can use to make even those incremental baby steps along the way. So it's really about unleashing your potential, whatever that means to you. And as I said, it can be in a personal context, a professional context, in a spiritual context. I am agnostic about all of it, but it's about unleashing your potential, living in alignment with your values and your life and, and who you are as an individual, instead of trying to force fit yourself into somebody else's plan or somebody else's vision for what life is supposed to look like. And it kind of highlights a lot of what you shared already about stepping into to who you are, honoring that and from that yeah. place, um, going on to do the great things that you can do, that you're capable of. Yeah. Or that you um, want to yeah, do, yeah, you know, you just because yeah. just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Like, that's totally up to you, you know. And yeah. so it's, yeah, it really is. It's not about being selfish and about being blindly obsessed with yourself. It's about honoring who you are. It's a, it's a powerful book. And, and I do have an insight that you're looking and you're in the process of another book yes i am so it's i'm in a, in a funny in a, in a in a lovely but slightly funny place because i'm in the process of of writing another book which i cannot share anything about yet because it's yeah. still such a blob i'm looking for i'm telling you, i'm looking forward to the surprise you know i'm looking forward yeah, to good. it well i definitely. will let you know but while i'm going through this process of creating something new 
my book hasn't even launched, my existing book hasn't even launched in the US. So I'm still sort of got one foot in that old book, even though it just came out in May, it's not that old, but it launches in the US next May. We wanted a full year to sort of just get it out into the world and, and the UK and you know all of the, mm -hmm. the book tours and the events and that stuff and just focus here. And obviously then because the US is such a, a, a sort of a, a much bigger market and that's my home, wanted to have that time um, to really be able to focus yeah. first here and then there. Uh, because I am based here in the UK. And so anyway, yeah, so while I'm going to be sort of ramping up again on the promotion and the events and all of that great stuff in the US, I'm in the process of creating something totally different to from CIA to CEO. Well, we're, I'm, I'm super excited, you know, yeah. to, to be honest, and I know it's going to be great. You know, like one, one question that I suppose I have to ask that, you know, it's fundamental to who you are as a person is your family. Yeah. So, so you've got two beautiful young kids two very young yeah. kids i've had two daughters a two-year-old and a five-year-old so no i've got a two i, I have a two and a half year old in january and a 14 month yeah. old so it's 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 beautiful magical but it's challenging as well uh-huh so you uh -huh. shared all of these <laughs> really powerful things you've been doing and at the same yeah. time you know you've been raising your kids in the, in, in the best way you can so yep. that must have been very 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 hard to to do what you've been doing and to, to, to do your best with your, your family as well. So what, yeah. what can you tell us more about, you know, how you've done that and what, you know, what enabled you to, to show up at your best in, in both areas of your life? Oh, uh, so first I'm going to acknowledge the fact that I am in a very lucky position where I have an incredibly wonderful partner. So our partnership is truly equal there's none of this weird like rivalry you know that's for the man's job or that's the woman's job i will just as happily fix a leaking toilet as my husband will you know sort of cook dinner like there's no none of that sort of noise in my life and mm -hmm. i think to be honest choosing the right partner has created so much space in my life to do all of the other things. And I know this sounds uh, maybe a bit old fashioned and it's not prescriptive in any way, but I would say, choose your partner carefully because they can make or break pretty much everything in your life, whether that's your career, your relationships, who your kids are, how they turn out to be. I mean, it's a really big decision. And I think I just am incredibly lucky. So first and foremost, I, you know, I have a lot of, um, just balance in in that side of things in our relationship. And 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 again, he's very supportive of my career as well. And it's never a question of like, oh, well, can you please stop traveling? It's like, okay, well, I'll just make it happen if you need to be away, you know, as I was this year, pretty much once a week, every, every week for a few months. Yeah. So that's one element. The other thing is I'm also in a lucky position where I can afford the ridiculously expensive childcare that we have in in, in the UK, but in, in large parts of the West as well. Um, so both of my children from the ages of six months and seven months were in full-time uh, daycare or had some support from, from family to help look after them. Yeah. So that was a huge element of it. And it's not, it's not insignificant, you know, I mean, childcare is everybody's responsibility. And I think it's, it's, it's been seen as more of a luxury as opposed to the, the, the core sort of social infrastructure that it is. But I thankfully, and, and I'm very acknowledged uh, or I, I very readily acknowledge the again the privilege I have to be able to afford this exorbitant childcare uh, that you know sadly a lot of people can't yeah. afford. Um, so I've got a, a lot of the this the the stuff in place to make it easier. But the things that I have done that perhaps are unique to me, but I don't know, is I have also been very conscious 
of the trade-offs. And I have been very, I've owned the trade-offs and I've chosen for myself the, the acceptance of the type of parent I want to be, the role model I want to be for my parents, for my kids, sorry. And I don't very often feel guilty about it because especially for moms, but for parents maybe in, in particular, the guilt is a huge yeah. element of yeah. it. And I decided really early on that I was going to make parenthood look what like whatever I wanted it to look like. So I wasn't going to let it define me as a person. I wasn't going to let it... Um, sort of sidetrack my career. And again, like I said, I have these other structures in place that have allowed me to make those choices. But I wasn't, you know, I'm okay with the fact that I'm away from my children. My husband, on the other hand, doesn't really like to be away from them for more than 24 hours where I was like, you know what, <laughs> send me to Scotland for a week. I am cool, like doing work and, you know, sort of pursuing yeah. my career. It's okay. Because also there are different ways to be a parent and there are different ways to be successful. And I have chosen my definition of success. So again, for me, my success is living on my own terms, being a really powerful role model for my girls that, you know, yeah, mommy isn't the one who sort of takes a step back from her career. And, you know, she's going to be the one who does all of the bedtime and all of the drop-offs and all of that stuff. And as I said, I acknowledge I've got the other structures in place, but I've also accepted the fact that like, I'm not the person who's going to be, I've never baked a birthday cake for my children because that's just not my strengths. Like I'm not going to yeah. beat myself up over the fact that like, I just don't like to bake. I don't even really like to cook. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm loving your honesty, but to be honest, I think it's pretty, pretty well, powerful. So yeah, I mean, Thanks the sad sure. reality is, is that, you know, my kids at home will eat a lot of pasta, a lot of noodles and tofu, and they get their balanced nutrition at school. And that's not a fight that I'm going to fight with myself, because they are loved, they are well taken care of, and they are nourished enough, right? I'm not going to beat myself over the fact that I don't give them organic home cooked meals, you know, three times a day or whatever yeah, else. Like, yeah. That's just not a, a fight I'm going to pick with myself. So it's been that combination of, like I said, having the resources very luckily to, to support, to, to effectively hire the support that I need, but then also just defining what it's going to look like for myself and not, and not apologizing for it. You know, I'm not the one who goes to all of the school plays. If I can't go, I don't beat myself up if there's a conflict in my personal or work life and I can't show up for something for my child you know presenteeism is as much of a plague for parents as it is for employer employees because yeah. just because you're there doesn't mean anything you know and and I'd rather be a hundred percent present with my kids when I'm with them yeah. instead of like sneakily checking my phones and uh, emails yeah, and texts yeah. then you know half-assing anything so whenever possible my view is to just don't half-ass it like if you're there be there if you're not there don't be there but like don't you know beat yourself up for the realities of what it is to be a parent and someone who cares about their career that, you know that that's really um, a high performance approach to <laughs> parenting, right? There you go. Because when you're there, you're there. When you're not, yeah. you're ultimately you're, you're, yeah. you you got to be where you are. And it's, it's carrying yeah. that guilt or that what if. You know, you got to commit yeah. to whatever it is you're committing to. And I think role modeling to your to your girls as well. You know that that approach that you have there is, is I definitely think will be really powerful for them. And no doubt that you know it's going to stand instead to them. So congratulations. On, I hope so. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see. Ah, no doubt. Um, you know, I think there are, I suppose one of the kind of last questions I have is around this time of the year. Mm. It's, um, you know, you've got a year, 2022, that has gone past. Mm. And, you know, through the conversation, we referenced yeah. the ability to to reflect, to pause and to move forward more optimal um, in, in the right direction that you want. You know, I, I think, now is a right now is a great opportunity for people to do, to do that to pause they'll have the time 
rather than scrolling through the phone and just wasting that time. Like, how would you best recommend people to just, you know, go into 2023, you know, in a better, better place, better version of themselves? What I do every year, and I found it hugely powerful for me, and then also those I've shared it with, is every year around this time, I do what I call a capture your year exercise. So I sit with myself and give myself a totally distraction-free, disruption-free sort of 60 to 90 minutes. And I literally, I go through my entire diary from the 1st of Jan to the present day. And I look, you know, what did I do? Where was I? What were the meetings that I had? What, you know, projects was I working on? All of that stuff, because we think we remember and we're terrible at remembering the full, the fullness of every year. You know, there was a year during COVID, for example, where I was like, oh God, we haven't done anything as a family. We haven't, you know, we've only been working and staying Mm -hmm. at home. And then I actually looked at the data, went through my diary and I realized actually in between lockdowns, we actually had some really wonderful family holidays away and we had that recharge and that reset, but our memories are so unreliable. So don't rely on your memory, go through the data, go, whether it's, you know, your email, my, my diary is where I keep everything. So that's the best memory job for me. And then it'll do, well, that exercise by itself is really powerful because it reminds you of all that you have done instead of being yourself, oh, I didn't choose this thing and all of those goals that I'd set out, like I didn't accomplish. Well, maybe you didn't accomplish all of those, but you accomplished different ones that you didn't even realize, but you would just breeze to it. So that's one thing. The second thing it does is also, and what I do as part of this exercise is then capture the biggest lessons learned. And, you know, people like the number 10, I will sort of give myself between 10 and 15, the 10 biggest lessons I learned. And that can be positive things. It can be challenges. It can be whatever. But the 10 to 15 biggest lessons I learned, write them down and then analyze all of those and say, okay, well, is there anything that I need to build into my life, into my business, into the support structures I have around me, into anything that will mean that some of those more difficult lessons don't repeat themselves in the coming year and that I can sustain some of the positive stuff. So again, like you said, what am I keeping? What do I need to change? What do I need to adapt? And, and being analytical about it and then going that final step and, and then planning for how you're going to build those structures and those processes or whatever it looks like into your business or into your lifestyle or into your, your diary or, you know, your weekly schedule, whatever it looks like. And so for me, it's really, like I said, basing it on the data, analyzing the data, drawing the lessons, literally crystallizing the lessons from that data implementing into my plan for the next year. And then this is a bonus step that I I do, but not everyone has to do it. I always share those lessons with other people. So, you know, I said, I've got a newsletter and a blog. So I always, every year I will post, you know, here are my biggest lessons learned. And I'm very honest about these were the challenges. These were some of the, you know, the good things, et cetera. Because sometimes in the process of sharing, you relearn it or it reinforces it, but also you can hopefully at least give people the, um, the heads up of like, hey, this might happen to you and this is what I've done to to maybe make it less likely to happen next time. So yeah, it's kind of like what was resonating for me there is, you know, when you look back on the years, kind of like taking stock of everything, the lessons, you know, and all of that. And you said the data, which is huge. And when you do that, it's kind of giving yourself advice for how you'd approach the following years. So like exactly. advice statements exactly. or just guiding yourself in terms of okay, how I need to approach next year. Yeah. Building on that, which is um definitely I'll do that. Yeah, no doubt no doubt so yeah <laughs> and i might even share it as well excellent you know I, i've been thinking yeah so it's a good um good inspiration there so so rupal is there any um any final things you'd like to share with the the listeners and even i'd love to ask you the question about where they might find you but is there anything yeah. that you'd like to share gosh we have covered a lot of ground so i think everything <laughs> yeah. that i could think of um 
we've we've already discussed. But all I would say is, you know, um, we are all capable of so much more than we sometimes even realize ourselves. So as we're looking towards closing out the year and towards what happens next year, I would encourage maybe everybody to think about what is one big thing that you could do next year that at the end of that year, you'd look back in that year and be like, you know what, that was a damn good year. Yeah, maybe I didn't do all of those 25 different things that were on my to-do list, but this one thing that makes it worth worth all of it. And it could be a, you know, a bucket list item. It could be a personal challenge and an intellectual challenge, learning a language or starting to learn, but just choose one thing, you know, keep it simple. It could be for work. It could be for pleasure. Who cares? You decide. But again, as we expand our sense of and, and prove to ourselves that we are capable of more than we realize, it builds this really powerful sort of confidence momentum. And so every year I set myself a big challenge to say, okay, well, what's this, this you know, the big meaty thing going to be this year? And how can I bust through my own self, um, self or my sense of what my limitations are? And sometimes those are intellectual limitations. Sometimes those are financial limitations, whatever it is. But I would encourage everyone to at least think about what that one thing could be. You know, I'm reflecting again on that one thing for me, you know, so it's, I'm hopefully the guys are, are, are doing the same that are listening. So look, Rupal, yeah. I just want to say thanks so much. Yeah. Um, I want to just uh, acknowledge your, your honesty, your openness, your, your curiosity, yeah. your desire to help, your desire to do the right thing um, and everything you shared. And I've no doubt, you know, I'm super excited about the next book. I've no doubt the book you have because I've read it. It's going to do very well. And um, hopefully in the future, we'll we'll potentially do some work together because I know we, we, we do similar work. So I'm looking forward to yeah, that. Yeah. Yes. and keeping connected and and um, potentially having you back on as well to, to, to talk about the next book so so good. thanks thanks so much you know thanks so much it was an absolute pleasure Stephen. and one of my big goals for next year is to come up to ireland um so hopefully we'll be able to have one of our next conversations in person oh 100 so we're going to come to the real capital right so in ireland dublin is the capital but where i'm from is actually the real capital county cork so that's where you're gonna you got to get down here <laughs>